Father, I say a, a special prayer today for the Dexter family that's joined us from China. Father, thank you for their example of dedication and diligence and faithfulness. I thank you, Father, for the privilege and the blessing that we've had to be a small part of that work from a distance. It reminds us, Father, that you are at work around us all the time. It's only a question of whether we'll join you in that work. And I thank you, Lord, that we've joined and continue to support what they're doing. But I thank you most of all, Father, for the way you have been gracious to them and the work they do there and in the way that they have served there. And you've encouraged them through difficult times. But you've challenged them, Father, so that there would be spiritual growth as well. It's what you do for all of us, Father. I thank you for their example of how godly men and women respond to challenges, how they accept the privilege of working alongside you, how they take what you've given them, Father, and done as much as they can. We thank you, Father, for that and for their presence here today. And as we turn our attention, Father, to Ezekiel and to the words you gave through him, I pray, Father, that our mind would be directed at the events of his day so that we might understand the word in its day today in our hearts and that it might do its work there as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I mentioned last week that we've entered into an extended section in this book, the book of Ezekiel, and that section runs from chapters 4 to 24. It's a long section, and essentially in that part of the book, the Lord is telling Ezekiel, issue warnings to Israel about what I'm going to do to the city of Jerusalem as a result of their sin. And last week I explained to you basically how that took place, that it was through the destruction of the city at the hands of the Babylonians that God carries out all of the prophecy that he's beginning to explain. And then it goes from there into many centuries of time. So we've already got the big picture. That was covered last week. But if you were to go through the rest of the book quickly, and I I don't want you to do that now, but maybe you've already started. Some of you have told me you've been reading ahead. A few of the things have caught your eye. John's particularly interested in chapter 23. You might go look there and see why. But if you were to scan through the chapters I just described, from 4 through 24, you're going to notice that the theme doesn't change a lot. The Lord is going to continue through those chapters to hammer away at Israel over what they have done to offend him and the severe consequences that are coming upon them because of that sin. And at times he's going to use some very colorful language. You might even say vulgar language. And I will warn parents, by the way, when we approach one of those chapters so that you'll have plenty of time to consider what's coming. But in general, the message itself is going to remain fairly consistent over these chapters. So anyone who attempts to preach through this book on a weekly basis is faced with the challenge of keeping it fresh from week to week. And I've heard it said, I believe it's true, that Ezekiel is the least often taught book in the Bible from the pulpit. And I think the reason for that is that a lot of pastors are reluctant to make their congregations listen to God pronouncing judgments against his people week after week after week. Fortunately for you, I'm not that sensitive. So we're going to teach this book because it's in the Bible. And that in itself tells us that though we might approach it with certain perspectives, certain worries, etc., it's only out of ignorance that we do that. We need to appreciate the fact that there's something here that needed to stand the test of eternity. Though it was spoken for a certain reason and a certain day, it wasn't limited in that way. So then we have to be very attentive. Let's figure out why this book was so important that God wanted it to become part of His eternal Word. Nevertheless, I do recognize that I need to take a certain approach 
to the text as I move through it in order that we don't lose sight of the forest for the trees, that it doesn't become repetitive. So here's what I'm going to do. Each of the next of the 20 chapters or so that are ahead of us in this section, they all reveal some different aspect of this coming judgment on how God's reacting to their sin. Some of the chapters just dive into the details of their sin and God's wrath because of it, that God is going to send certain judgments against the people, different ones against the city, different ones against the land. But then later you're going to see chapters in which God removes His glory from the tabernacle, which is a very important moment in the history of Israel, or chapters on how He silences all the false prophets, or how He's going to remove all the idols that are in the land. There are even chapters where the Lord promises, I'm going to bring this nation a heart that is soft again and can have faith again and will ultimately receive the kingdom because of that soft heart. These are dramatic promises of restoration too. So we have all of that ahead of us. And in each case, as we go to each of these chapters, I'm going to focus our attention on what is unique in that chapter. We're going to read every word, but when a chapter starts to repeat some of the themes we've already covered, I'm going to give less time to that. We're going to move past that more quickly so that we can examine the aspects that are more important. Okay, that's my promise to you. So if you're sitting here thinking, I can't put up with 20 more weeks of talking about Israel's judgments, I hope you'll find that it's not that hard. And there is something in there for you. Here's what we're doing in the next three chapters, starting today in chapter 5. We're going to study the consequences of the destruction that's coming on the city, the destruction that Ezekiel has foretold. And those three chapters give us each a different perspective on it. Today's chapter looks at God's judgment and its effect on the people themselves. Next week we're looking at the effect of that judgment on the land. And then the week after that will be on Israel's wealth or their posterity. And those three perspectives happen to parallel the promises that God gave to Abraham. Remember, the Lord promised Abraham that he would have a people, number one, that he would have a land, number two, and that they would be blessed with an inheritance. Those three promises are unconditional. They don't depend on Israel's performance or their obedience. And I can assure you that the Lord will remain faithful to his people in all three of those areas. But as Paul tells us in Romans, not all Israel are those who are descended from Israel. That is to say, only those within Israel who share in the faith of Abraham will likewise share in the promises given to Abraham. The Bible has a word for that group. It's called the remnant, and we're going to talk about that group today. So let's move into chapter 5. Here again, these are the consequences on the people. What will happen to the people in the city? And it begins with the final piece of that charade that Ezekiel has been asked to perform. We studied the charade last week. Let's look at the final piece today. So chapter 5, verse 1. As for you, son of man, take a sharp sword... Take it and use it as a barber's razor on your head and beard. Then take scales for weighing and divide the hair. One third you shall burn in the fire at the center of the city when the days of the siege are completed. Then you shall take one third and strike it with the sword all around the city. And one third you shall scatter to the wind and I will unsheath a sword behind them. Take also a few in number from them and bind them in the edges of your robes. Take again some of them and throw them into the fire and burn them in the fire. From it, a fire will spread to all the house of Israel. 
All right, I told you last week that it's tough when you drop into the middle of somebody else's game of charades because you have to make sense of the context, you have to make sense of the clues. Last week, God asked Ezekiel to begin this charade in front of the people of Israel, and it started with making this little miniature model of the city of Jerusalem. And then after he did that, he was supposed to lie on his side on the ground next to it for 430 days, first one way, then the other And we learned last week that those actions on Ezekiel's part were to be a sign to the people of Israel of what was coming against the people of the city of Jerusalem back in Israel. That the city would be sieged yet again by the Babylonians, be taken, the people would be barred from free access to the city for 430 years. We come now to the last part of the charade that God asked Ezekiel to perform. And in this particular part, he's going to dramatize the effects of that siege on the people that are inside the city. And he starts by telling Ezekiel, I want you to shave your head and beard. Now the law of God given to Moses for the people of Israel prohibited a man from shaving his head and his beard under certain circumstances. And very specifically, if you were a priest, you could not serve before the Lord if you shaved your head in this way. Now remember, Ezekiel had been trained as a priest, though he's never been able to serve as one. So now he tells Ezekiel, I want you to do this very shameful thing. And if he had done it back in the time of Israel when the temple was there and he was with it, it would have been disqualifying. It would have prevented him from serving in the way God had asked him to serve. But in this case, the Lord's instructions don't disqualify him from any service. There is no service. He's in Babylon. There's no temple. It's not a sinful thing for him to do it. It would have just simply disqualified him from service in the temple. All it has the effect of doing now is humiliating Ezekiel before the people shaming him for taking this act. Now remember, just like we said last week, Ezekiel is not doing this for his own sake. He's playing a part. It's as if he is in a play and he has a role. And the part he plays, remember from last week? Who does Ezekiel represent in all that God is having him do? He is the house of Israel. This one man represents all of the people of Israel. To be even more specific, it's his hair that's playing the part now of Israel. So the Lord tells Ezekiel, take your hair, cut it off, and I want you to make three piles of this hair that you've shaved off, and you're going to divide them by weighing them on a scale. Now that seems awfully precise, doesn't it? It feels like that's an unnecessary detail. But it's not because God is necessarily so concerned with the hairs being split so perfectly. It's more to the picture of what it means. When you weigh something on a scale, it's a picture of God's judgment. Interestingly, the world of unbelievers use a very similar idea for their own sake. They just don't understand it properly. They tend to think of judgment from God as coming in that way, right? As long as my good works are more than my bad works, it'll all be good for me in the end. You know, as long as I don't get the wrong side too heavy. It's a way of making ourselves feel better because everyone who thinks that way, conveniently, they always have their good side a little heavier, at least in their own mind. It's not the way it works at all, of course. But scales, nonetheless are a picture of judgment. So the hair is experiencing a judgment of sorts, and the precision of the measurement emphasizes the discriminating nature of God's judgment. He is not capricious. He doesn't overlook even one hair, so to speak. So God is telling Ezekiel, I want you to play this part in front of Israel, showing them that what will happen after the city is destroyed is I will assign one of three outcomes to the population. The population of Israel will be divided into thirds. Each third will receive a different fate as a result of the destruction of the city. The first third will die in the siege of the city. That is, like the hairs that are burned up in the center of the city. You know, this is actually the part you'd probably enjoy if you were a kid playing toy soldiers. You know, when the battle is over, you get to burn all the toy soldiers up at the end. 
Is it just me that thought that way when I was a kid? No wonder my mother was so concerned for me. So you take your hair, you throw it in the middle, a third of it in the middle, and he burns it. He says, that will represent the people who just die in the siege. Then a second third will die, he says, by the sword. He wants them to take the hair and cut it with the sword outside the city, it says. The Babylonians were a large, competent, angry army. And after having tried to get into that city for so long, they finally got in. They weren't going to let anybody get out, not without paying a price. And so about a third, as you hear, a third of the city dies in the process of trying to escape. They're chased down and they're killed by the Babylonian army. And then you have this final third of the hare, representing a third of the people of Israel. The Lord asks Ezekiel, throw it up in the wind, like you were winnowing. Let the wind carry it away. And this represents, or symbolizes, the scattering of Israel among the Gentile nations of the world. A third of the city was taken captive by the Babylonians, dragged off, and after a period of time in captivity, over the centuries, they've made their way around the world. Some came back to the land for a time, even those eventually got scattered again. The point is, you're going to have a third of the city survive, and these refugees will be driven into the world, and you notice he says, I will unsheath a sword behind them. The point the Lord is making is, I will use the Babylonian army to drive them out of the city. And that's how they were taken. They were taken in chains, as a prisoner, into Babylon by the army. Now, from the perspective of the people who are going to suffer these judgments, in the midst of it happening, it would appear as a random series of events, right? They see their city destroyed. They see people around them dying. They watch as their family or their countrymen are either dying in the fire, dying outside the city, some of them being carted off. The whole thing just looks like a complete disaster with no sense to it. But the Lord's telling them now, in advance, you need to understand that what is about to happen is not chance, it's not random, it is a plan. And it is a plan that I am executing as my judgment against an unbelieving and ungodly people who have violated my covenant. But that is not to be the end of Israel. Notice in verse 3, the Lord commands Ezekiel, I want you to take from among the three piles, I want you to separate out a few hairs. And these few that you take out and set aside, I want you to bind them in the edges or the hem of the robe that you're wearing. We can imagine how he might have done this, I guess, with a needle and thread. Lay a few hairs out on the edge of his garment and put the needle in. I don't know. I mean, something like that, right? He would have secured them. It's a very odd little thing that he's being asked to do here. But it's important. In that day, a man's robe was symbolically representative of his character, of his authority. You may remember moments in the, in the Bible where you see that reflected, like when David is able to go up behind Saul in the cave when Saul's not aware and cut a piece of his robe off and then later demonstrate that, look how close I got to you. I was able to actually take some of your character, your glory, your power and authority, which is proof to you that I had control over you in a moment, but I didn't choose to hurt you. Later in the Gospels, when Jesus is walking, the woman who has that disease she has not been able to see cured for many years, she comes up behind him and just grabs the hem of his robe because Scripture said that there would be healing in the edge of the garment of the Messiah. Her act of grabbing it was an evidence of her faith in him as Messiah, and she was healed. That's the way Israel has typically understood the hem of a garment. It symbolizes that person's entire character and nature. So when God says, take a few of the hairs that you have split out, pull a few little ones out, and put them in your robe, 
We're saying that there will be some within Israel, some people within Israel who share in the character and faithfulness of Ezekiel. They're like Ezekiel in that sense. Who are these few that he's pulling out? Well, the Bible has a very specific word that it uses to describe those Jews within the nation of Israel with faith, saving faith. We use different words today. I'm going to use the Bible word. The Bible word for this group is the remnant. The remnant of Israel. The word itself connotes something, doesn't it? I made the joke in Sunday school this morning that after you pay your taxes, the money you have in the bank, that's your remnant. It's what you have left over after a whole bunch of other stuff's taken away. The remnant. It's an important concept in Scripture. The Bible tells us that though the nation of Israel is very numerous, only a small group within that larger group are actually truly believing in God. As I said, we would call that group today those who are saved. The Bible would call them the remnant. It's an equivalent term. It's a small group relative to the larger group of Israel. The larger group of Israel was created by the Old Covenant. That is the covenant given through Moses. The smaller group of the remnant is created, according to Paul in Romans 10, by God's gracious choice. And by faith they share in the Abrahamic covenant. So we have the larger group of the old from within which we find a smaller group of believing Jews as part of ultimately the new covenant. In Isaiah 10.20, this is what we hear concerning his remnant. Isaiah lived a few centuries before Ezekiel. And this is what Isaiah wrote. 10.20, he says, Now in that day, the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will return. So this is the the general concept. We could make a very similar comparison to the church. We're not going to use the term remnant to describe the church, but in a similar sense, I can see buildings full of people who call themselves Christian and they identify with a building or they identify with a group of people who meet there. But within that larger group, There may only be some who have been born again by faith in Jesus Christ and are going to heaven. And to the ones who are born again, we can see the difference. But to the ones who have yet to be born again, they can't see the difference. They just see everybody is the same as them. That's why you can find people who have gone to church for many, many years, but at some later point in their life, they have a true saving moment. They come to know Jesus truly. They have a born-again experience in their heart, and that person then will see the difference in their own life and realize, all this time I was just playing Christian. All this time I was just going to church because my mom dragged me there or because my wife or husband dragged me there. Now I finally get it. I understand who Jesus is and why I have to be saved, and it all makes sense. And finally, I understand why everyone's so excited about this guy. That was me for many years. Knowing from what I experienced, I can tell you, if you're someone sitting in a church regularly and you don't get it, and you're coming because someone else is making you come to church, friend, you need to get right with God. You need to understand what everyone is so excited about because when you die, your church attendance won't count for nothing. It matters what's in here. And I know that experience firsthand. So the Lord is telling His people through Ezekiel that in the midst of the coming destruction of Jerusalem, He is going to preserve a remnant. He's not going to forget His people. 
The believers within Israel are going to be preserved. But notice, they are not spared from the judgment. Did you notice that? After all, Ezekiel is part of the remnant. And where is Ezekiel as all of this is taking place? He is in Babylon. He's already been taken in one of the earlier battles. So what the Lord is saying is some of these hairs are going to be just like you, Ezekiel. Put them in your hem. They're going to be just like you. They're going to be taken in a judgment. They're going to be hauled off to Babylon. But here's the key. They being righteous by faith, I am going to preserve them. He's not going to preserve them from the judgment. He's going to preserve them through the judgment. Do you see the difference? And at the end of it, he says, according to Isaiah, I'm going to bring them back. Who comes back from the captivity? The remnant. Why do they come back? Well, if you know anything about your history of the Bible, there's a moment about 70 years from now. When a king tells the captives, you can go back now. The Lord has told me you need to go back so you can build a new temple after we destroyed your last one. They're living in a place they've lived their whole life at that point. That's what home is now. That's all they know. They're comfortable, reasonably comfortable. And now they're told, travel a few hundred miles south to a wasteland where there is no city, there is no wall, there is no temple, and start over. Who wants to do that? Only those who by faith believe in the word of God and want to be obedient. The remnant are who return. That's where you read that in Ezra and you read that in Nehemiah. These judgments are being brought as a result of the old covenant, which binds the whole nation to a single fate. Within that are the remnant who are caught up in those judgments. But they're saved by their faith and they are also going to be preserved by their faith through these earthly judgments. So they can share in the future of Abraham. Paul says in Romans 4.13, For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So God's promise to Abraham and to his descendants is that you will have wonderful things, and their faith is what makes that possible. But they come out of a nation that was created by law. And because they violate that law, they see the consequences. So no matter what calamity would come to Israel for their failure to keep the old covenant, nevertheless, there is a remnant, God says, that has the assurity of eternal life, And in the midst of what comes to the nation, they have the promise of preservation. But then notice in verse 4, there is a counter to this, and I want to be sure that you see the full picture. Verse 4, Ezekiel is told, Take a few of those hairs that you pulled out, which we know are the remnant, and burn them. Now that's an interesting detail, isn't it? Everything was working really well there for a minute. The bad guys got the bad stuff. The good guys didn't have to worry so much. But now we have some of the good guys suffering as well. What's this about? Well, when the Babylonians came to capture the city, as Ezekiel is prophesying, some of the remnant... Now remember, when I use the word remnant, you can just substitute the word believers. So some of the remnant of Israel did not want to go into exile. Now, who can blame them? But the problem was they had been told by their prophet that that was what God wanted. He wanted the exiles to go, even believers. That word came to them from the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was living in Jerusalem at the same time as Ezekiel. They were contemporaries. And after the second siege of the city, Ezekiel's gone. He's left. But Jeremiah is still in the city. And while he's there waiting for the third attack, God speaks through him to the remnant that's in the city and says, look, Babylonians are coming back. And they're going to destroy the city, just like he told Ezekiel. And when they do, we are going into exile with them. That's God's purpose for his remnant. And the men who were there, some of the remnant who were there, decided they didn't like that plan. What they decided instead was, we'll just go to Egypt before the third attack. 
before they do that, they go to Jeremiah and they ask Jeremiah to confirm that the Lord will be with them in their decision to go to Egypt. Now you think that's kind of a dumb question, right? After they've already heard all the stuff they've heard, but nonetheless, they thought maybe if they ask again, God would give them a better answer. In Jeremiah 42.1, we read this. Then all the commanders of the forces, Johanna the son of Kareah, and Jezaniah the son of Hoshiah, and all the people, both small and great, approached and said to Jeremiah the prophet, Please let our petition come before you, and pray for us to the Lord your God, that is for all this remnant, because we are left but a few out of many, as your own eyes now see us, that the Lord your God may tell us the way in which we should walk and the thing that we should do. Now, what they're saying is this. Could you go to the Lord and ask Him what the Lord wants us to do? We're planning to go to Egypt, but would you just check in with Him first? Then Jeremiah the prophet said to them, I have heard you. Behold, I'm going to pray to the Lord your God in accordance with your words, and I will tell you the whole message which the Lord will answer you. I will not keep a word back from you. And so he prays, and then he comes back. Here's what he tells them the answer is. Verse 11. This is the Lord speaking to the remnant. He says, Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon, whom you are now fearing. Do not be afraid of him, declares the Lord, for I am with you to save you and to deliver you from his hand. You hear that? That's him saying, You are the remnant. I'm going to preserve you through this trial. Then he goes on. I will also show you compassion, so that he will have compassion on you and restore you to your own soil. But, if you are going to say, We will not stay in this land so as not to listen to the voice of the Lord your God, saying, No, but we will go to the land of Egypt, where we will not see war or hear the sound of a trumpet or hunger for bread, and we will stay there. Then, in that case, listen to the word of the Lord, O remnant of Judah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, If you really set your mind to enter Egypt and go to reside there, then the sword which you are afraid of will overtake you there in the land of Egypt. And the famine about which you are so anxious will will follow you closely after you are in Egypt and you will die there. So all the men who set their mind to go to Egypt to reside there will die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence, and they will have no survivors or refugees from the calamity that I'm going to bring on them. The Lord said, look, I'm prepared to protect you through this. I've got a big plan. You guys need to just play your part. Go along and be good boys and girls in Babylon. You'll get to come back. This is part of something I'm doing. Oh, but you don't like that plan? Okay, you go to Egypt, you're going to die. So what do you think they do? Well, the people that hear this from Jeremiah were so disturbed by what he told them that they claimed he was lying, that that didn't come from the Lord, and they decided to go to Egypt anyway. But here's the kicker. They were so determined to disobey the Lord's instructions that they decided to punish the prophet and they kidnapped Jeremiah and they made Jeremiah go to Egypt with them. Their thinking, I guess, was he won't hurt us if we have Jeremiah. Like that's going to stop God. We don't know much more after that. We just know that Jeremiah eventually lived out his remaining years and died in Egypt. And of course, if we take God's word at face value, all of those who went with him died too, as he promised they would. So Ezekiel, back to Ezekiel, Ezekiel is telling us through that verse I mentioned that the Lord is going to take the remnant and he says, I'm going to burn them too. The point being is, there is a judgment for disobedience, even within the remnant. It didn't matter if they hid in the cities or in the hills or fled to Egypt, they're going to see judgment because you can run, but you cannot hide. 
That was the point, which reminds us there is consequence for disobedience. And you can see these two principles working together in this example. Because first, God's people may experience bad things because God is working around us to do bigger things. We might see a trial. We might live somewhere when a hurricane blows through. Or we might be somewhere where an economic disaster takes place. Or we might have family emergencies. These things are inevitable. What each of us experiences might be different. But no one lives through this whole life without something, right? That's normal, unfortunately. But you have to understand God is doing something. And the right response to those circumstances is to go where God wants you to go, whether it's into the fire or away from it, so to speak. But you can't make your own path and assume God's just going to bless that. That's the second principle. The first principle is that you will see God at work around you, and it may not be things you prefer, but the Lord has not forgotten you. He knows who the believing are. He understands who his children are. Even if he is bringing things around us that are difficult, he can distinguish who are his and who are not his. And he will preserve us through trial. Eventually, we all pass away, and that's a blessing because we're waiting for what comes next. So you can't sit here and say that because we're a believer, he's never going to let anything ever happen to us. That's false theology also. What I am saying is this, the good things that he has for us in the course of a trial can only be received if we proceed through the trial in the path that he's assigned to us. And if we're too busy trying to escape everything he puts in our path, not only are we not getting any of the benefit out of it, we're setting ourselves up for discipline. As those men saw, right? They tried to avoid the sword, they got the sword. God has the power to do that. The Lord said through Jeremiah, if the remnant would go into captivity obediently, he would preserve them while they were there and he would bring them back in due time. And eventually, he would have kept that promise if they had allowed it. So believers have to remain obedient to the Lord, even when his commands don't suit our preference, because the alternative is worse. Now Ezekiel has finished his charade, so it's finally time to speak to the people. This is the end of the chapter, and it's a long section. This is where I keep my promise that I made to you earlier today. There's a lot in this next section that repeat what we learned last week. So I will read it, but we will not have to expound on it at the same level we've already done. So let's read from 5 all the way to 17. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem, speaking of the model again that he had Ezekiel set up. This is Jerusalem. I have set her at the center of the nations with lands around her. But she has rebelled against my ordinances more wickedly than the nations and against my statutes more than the lands which surround her. For they have rejected my ordinances and have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Because you have more turmoil than the nations which surround you and have not walked in my statutes, nor observed my ordinances, nor observed the ordinances of the nations which surround you, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I, even I, am against you, and I will execute judgments among you in the sight of the nations. And because of all of your abominations, I will do among you what I have not done, and the likes of which I will never do again. Therefore, Fathers will eat their sons among you, and the sons will eat their fathers, for I will execute judgment on you and scatter all your remnant to every wind. So as I live, declares the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable idols and with all your abominations, therefore I will also withdraw, and my eye will have no pity, and I will not spare. One third of you will die by plague or be consumed by famine among you. One third will fall by the sword around you. And one-third I will scatter to every wind, and I will unsheath a sword behind them. Thus my anger will be spent, and I will satisfy my wrath on them, and I will be appeased. 
Then they will know that I, the Lord, have spoken in my zeal when I have spent my wrath upon them. Moreover, I will make you a desolation and a reproach among the nations which surround you in the sight of all who pass by. So it will be a reproach, a reviling, a warning, and an object of horror to the nations who surround you when I execute judgments against you in anger, wrath, and raging rebukes. I, the Lord, have spoken. When I send against them the deadly arrows of famine, which were for the destruction of those whom I will send to destroy you, then I will also intensify the famine among you and break the staff of bread. Moreover, I will send on you famine and wild beasts, and they will bereave you of children. Plague and bloodshed will also pass through you, and I will bring the sword on you. I, the Lord, have spoken. The Lord is summarizing everything we've studied through this whole charade. And as I said, we've looked at it. So let me summarize what he's saying here in four points. First, he reminds Israel of the privilege that the Lord had given to them. The first point is privilege. In verse 5 he says, If you remember, I set you at the center of all the nations. The nation of Israel was not a nation until the Lord made them a nation. He called one guy out of nowhere, and through that man and his barren wife, he gave birth to a whole nation, which he defined. And then he assigned them a land. And that land just happened to sit, the Lord says, at the center of the earth. What he means by that is that the place Israel sits even today is a place where east and west essentially meet. If you were in the east and you needed to get something from the west, you had to cross through roads that took you through Israel and vice versa if you were coming from the other side of the world. It's no coincidence, friends, that still for as small a piece of land as Israel is today, that it dominates world attention and that so much of the world fights over it. That's not a coincidence. It reflects the Lord's desire for Israel in the sense that he put them there to be a light Among the nations. You know, if you had a really big dark space and you wanted to light it up and you had one light, where would you put the light? Would you stick it in the corner? Wouldn't it make more sense to put it in the middle of the room? Isn't that the best place to get the most out of the light you have? That's the concept here. Israel was supposed to witness to the living God and to His law by living according to it among the pagan nations that surrounded it. That was the goal. And in in return for that, the Lord said, I will protect you and I will bless you in that place. So the first point of this discourse was, you had privilege. Which leads us to the second point. The second point in verse 6, you were unfaithful. Israel's unfaithfulness. They were unfaithful to the old covenant and to the rules that it instituted. And not just a little unfaithful. I mean, we all know that the law is impossible to keep perfectly. But the Lord knew that. And it accommodated that. Because in the law itself, there were sacrifices made available for inadvertent sinning. That is, someone who wanted to do the right thing, but just didn't do it in the end. They had an opportunity in the law for sacrifices, which would atone in a temporary sense, and allow them to continue in God's favor under that covenant. But Israel had no interest in that. Ironically, he says, Israel adopted practices that were even more wicked than those that were routinely practiced by the nations that surrounded them who didn't have the law at all. He says, you didn't even keep their rules. You notice that? The Lord says, you didn't even keep the rules of those nations. He's saying, even the worst around you at least had minimum standards. They went beyond that. They sacrificed their own children to Baal. And in verse 7, the Lord observes that they were more evil than pagan nations. So they weren't a light. They were like a black hole in the dark room. They were worse than the darkness they were there to try to compensate for. Which leads to the third point, verse 8. 
the Lord says, as a result, I declared judgment. So privileged opportunity responded to with unfaithfulness leads to judgment. He says, because you were more wicked than other nations, I'm going to bring a calamity against you that's greater than anything else seen by any other nation. He says in verse 10, the nation will see their fathers consuming their children or sons consuming their elderly parents. This, unfortunately, is not just hyperbola. It's literal. Because as terrible as it sounds, it is an accurate description of what we know happened inside the city of Jerusalem during the siege, as we mentioned last week. As a result of the famine, people were reduced to this kind of behavior. Lamentations, and that's not a book we often talk much about, but Lamentations is a book written uh, by Jeremiah. It describes the sorrow of Israel following the fall of the city of Jerusalem. And here's what Lamentation says about this specific issue. Lamentations 4.9 Better are those slain with the sword than those slain with hunger. For they pine away, being stricken for the lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of a compassionate woman boil their own children. They became food for them because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord has accomplished his wrath. He has poured out his fierce anger. He has kindled a fire in Zion which has consumed its foundations. The third point is there were harsh, severe judgments, but he responded in severity to people whose own behavior was so abhorrent it shamed even the pagans. So the Lord needed to make a statement that was severe, and he did. And that leads us to the last point, the consequences. As we learned in the charade, the nation would be split into thirds, some dying famine, some dying of sword, the rest scattered, because the Lord says you'd have no pity And the story of Judah's downfall would be more than just the city. It would be one calamity after another. You notice in the concluding verses, the Lord speaks of wild beasts taking children, of more famine, of more bloodshed. Because the destruction of Jerusalem would be the worst disaster any nation had ever seen or will ever see, the Lord says in verse 9. He says he would never repeat this again. Now, there will be other disasters for Israel, There's going to be other conquerings for Israel. But never again did Israel experience this degree of severity. We don't hear of cannibalism in Israel at any other point. So friends, they had privilege, but they treated it with unfaithfulness. God, out of necessity, brought judgment. And his consequences were in keeping with the severity of their sin. Has God been fair to Israel in all of this? Well, let's consider that pattern just once more briefly. God gave his people a privileged place to serve in this world. But it wasn't simply that he dropped them in this place and said, let's see how you do. He blessed them with a land that was bountiful. He gave them a beautiful setting. He sent them teachers. He sent them inspiring leaders like Joshua and Samuel and David. He gave them judges or kings when they demanded it so that they would be guided in the right way while they lived in this land. He even made a provision in the law for sacrifices to cover the days when they didn't do so well. It's not as though he set them up for failure. So who do you blame? And even when they demonstrated unfaithfulness, the Lord still gave them plenty of second chances. He gave them priests to intercede for them in the sacrificial system. He gave them prophet after prophet to correct them and warn them and tell them you ought to do better. He gave them rain in their proper season even when they didn't deserve it. He gave them crops even when they wouldn't honor the Sabbath of the land. He gave them victory over Israel's enemies even as they were adopting the pagan practices of those very enemies. So who do you blame? 
And though when he had to bring judgment, he did it after long-suffering mercy. He waited patiently, and not just for a little while. If you read the Old Testament, God waits literally centuries. He waits longer for them to repent than our nation has existed on the earth. You think that's enough patience? And entire generations of evil came into existence, lived out their lives, and died, and never saw judgment on earth for what they were doing. Now, at times, he'd act to discipline them, but then the people would cry out, and he would relent, and he would restore them. That's the whole pattern of judges, remember? We studied that. So who do you blame? And then finally, you think about the severity of what he did, and you wonder, was that really the right thing for God to do? But think of what else he did. He cared for the exiles. He provided for a remnant. He delivered them into the land of Babylon safely. He made sure there was food for them to eat while they were there. He even gave them a prophet to talk to them while they were there so they knew what God was doing. He explained it all to them. After that 70 years was over, he brings them back into the land. And if you know the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, he brings about a restoration of the city and the walls and the temple again. So who's to blame? Because before you judge, you need to remember the Lord has preserved His word above His own name, it says in Scripture. And it was that very word of God that said to the people of Israel, do these things and see these outcomes. So would we want Him, in all honesty, to go back on His word for their sake? Would that make us feel better? Well, be careful what you ask for. Because if the Lord can ignore His word in one area, then He could ignore any of it. And you and I are resting in our own word We're resting in the promise that despite our sin, we will be with Him. That despite the evil of our hearts, He will forgive us. You know, that's a word we don't want Him to forget, is it? The same Lord that promises the judgments that Israel sees for their sin is the very same Lord who has said to us that by faith in the blood of Jesus Christ, we will not see those outcomes. You cannot have it both ways. He has been gracious beyond measure both for them and for us. But disobedience may have consequence. Thankfully, by our faith in Jesus Christ, we are saved from the consequence we all deserve, and we will be with Him in eternity. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, forgive each of us, Father, as we confess our sins to You in our hearts. We know by the blood of Christ those sins have been forgiven, but we also know, Father, that You call us into a life of obedience, not in order to be saved, but because we have become your children. And like the people of Israel, Father, we ask that with all the privilege that you've given us, and despite our unfaithfulness, that your judgments, Father, would be merciful, that the consequences would not rest on us, for they have on Christ, and that you would restore us and strengthen us for a better walk tomorrow. Let us serve you out of the joy of knowing that you've done all the work required. We pray a thanks for that, Father. And we ask another opportunity to witness to you in faith and in obedience. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.